This is Kate Moorhead Carroll in the podcast, Find It. Our democracy seems to be failing in this country, or at least it is under incredible stress. Contested elections, a government that can't seem to pass a budget. And the Episcopal Church has shown similar democratic struggles in the past few years in some parts of the country, including where I live. I want to talk to you today about the relationship between democracy, the Episcopal Church, and our faith as followers of Jesus. I was assigned to jury duty this week. What a hassle, but also what an honor to be given that kind of trust. Despite my annoyance at the time it was all going to take, and my anxiety at how I was supposed to do my job in the midst of this, I sat in our enormous courthouse here in Jacksonville and paused for a moment. It occurred to me how very awesome this system of justice really is. To be considered as a member of a body of people that can determine the fate of an individual who comes to trial It is a daunting responsibility. Our government, for all its messiness and intractability, is based on the premise that the common person is capable of choosing her leaders in government, and that this same common person is also capable of shaping justice. Little old me, capable of shaping justice? A bit of history. The Episcopal Church began in the crucible of the American Revolution. It was the late 1700s, and the colonies established by England were fighting for their independence. They did not want to send their precious tax dollars across the Atlantic Ocean to a land that no longer had their best interests at heart. They no longer wanted to pay for a government in which they had no representation, no say. These early patriots had a powerful vision. They wanted to govern themselves. The democracy that was established in this, the United States of America, also shaped the Episcopal Church. Many of the same men, and they were only men back then, I think, who wrote the Constitution of the United States of America, also wrote the Constitution and Canons of the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America. Come to think of it, what kind of a church has a nation in its title? You can see by our name that we were different, shaped by the form of governance in which we believed so strongly. We were Anglicans, but we no longer wanted to be called Anglicans, so we called ourselves Protestant Episcopal, which means protesting Catholic, but also a church of bishops. Episcopal means bishop. Episcopus in Greek. Our founders believed that God liked democracy and favored it over all kinds of government. Of course, there's nothing about this in the Bible specifically, but in fairness, it does say that God never wanted us to have a king. And the disciples built consensus and cast lots in the book of Acts. Maybe that was a kind of rudimentary ancestor to a democratic process. At least at the beginning of the church, it seemed that everyone in the community took part in decision-making. 
George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, all of them were Episcopalian. It is no wonder that the structure and governance of the Episcopal Church looks so much like that of the United States. But how can you blend democracy with an ancient tradition which includes holy ordained orders, bishops, priests, and deacons, orders that have been in place for over a thousand years? Can you have a balance between the respect, dignity, and authority of these ancient offices and the belief that God's will is best expressed through the majority vote? The story of the Episcopal Church is one of a miraculous balance between democracy and hierarchy. This balance that has led us to the forefront of the issues of modern-day Christianity, such as women's ordination and same-gender marriage, This is the beauty of democracy, its continued push to relevance, since it takes into account the voices of all people. But when the masses push forward, what about the ordained orders? I mean, if a bishop pushes forward and discerns the will of God, there's no problem there. The masses will follow. But what if the issues of a modern-minded layperson, a follower of Jesus, clash with those of a bishop Who is to prevail? Where, in fact, does authority lie? The issues of the current day have brought us to the brink of this question of authority, and we are working its answer out every time Episcopalians come to pray, and yes, to vote. The Anglican tradition is unique and wonderful, and it relies upon three primary sources in order to discern a path forward. We call these the three-legged stool, and though we often attribute this image of a stool to Richard Hooker, an Anglican priest from the 1500s, it was not his image, but rather one formed based on his teaching and writing. The three legs of this stool upon which we sit are number one, scripture. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and changes us. But this does not mean that the Bible is a rule book. In fact, literal interpretations of scripture that could lead one group to condemn another were exactly the kind of thing that seemed to make Jesus furious. Remember the Pharisees? No, the Bible is the living word of God, a book that transforms us as we read it, live with it, and wrestle with it, especially the descriptions of the incarnation of God. The second leg of the stool is tradition. We are a traditional church. Our worship dates all the way back to the Didache, a documented worship service from around 100 AD. We like the old stuff and we believe in its transcendence, its richness, its ability to take us out of time and into eternity. Liturgy at its best transports us into God's presence. Hence, we are faithful to these ordained roles of bishops, priests, and deacons that have been since the early church began. And the third leg of the stool is reason, and here's where things get messy. But this part it really works well with democracy. Once you embrace reason as, in essence, a gift from God, well, then you have to be open to new ideas, evolving understandings. You really have to come to believe that God is still revealing the divine self, that we will have new ideas that shake our foundations, that God is still speaking now 
through and into our incredibly wise and wonderful minds. So in a way, it makes sense that the Anglican Church in the United States would want to be democratic. We could say, in effect, that reason would tell us to do so. The structure of the Episcopal Church models that of the governance of this country. Instead of governance at a city, state, and national level, we have the parish, the diocese, and the national church. Three levels, like the three dimensions in which God made us. And at all three levels, there is elected leadership, which includes lay people. In the parish church, a vestry is elected at an annual meeting. The parish has bylaws and articles of incorporation. The rector or vicar or priest in charge is an ordained priest, ordained by a bishop, but subject to the invitation and support of the governing board. A healthy balance of power means that the priest has jurisdiction over the worship, the building, and the hiring of staff, but must report to the vestry on all matters financial, which basically means that the vestry must in some way approve of all major decisions and have confidence in its leadership. At the diocesan level, a bishop is elected at a gathering of clergy and laity that is bicameral, made up of two houses. The clergy and laity form these two houses and the bishop must be elected in both houses. That bishop then serves alongside a diocesan council or a standing committee. The bishop performs sacramental functions, such as confirmations and ordinations, but serves alongside the elected leadership, which oversees finances. All dioceses have their own unique take on this division of power, and it is expressed in their canons and articles of incorporation uniquely in each diocese. At a national level, the Episcopal Church gathers once every three years for what is called General Convention. This gathering is also bicameral. It is made up of two houses, the House of Deputies and the House of Bishops, The House of Deputies is made up of both priests, deacons, and laity. Both houses must pass a motion in order for it to be adopted. Between the space of these three years, there is an executive council made up of all four orders, including laity, and the House of Bishops tends to meet more often during the gaps as well. In other parts of the world, the ordained have all the power. Bishops, archbishops, they determine the course and priorities of the Anglican Church in their areas of the world, but not here. Here, in the U.S. of A., we run this great experiment. We are democratic and we are ancient, and therein lies the rub. Questions that we must address in this country are multiple. Who is eligible to vote and who is not? These issues must be addressed in a form which prioritizes both transparency and consensus building. Bylaws and articles of incorporation must be upgraded regularly to take into account things like virtual attendance during the pandemic. All people must review and evaluate documents that that govern and rule us. Can retired priests vote? Some dioceses say yes, some say no. There may be no right answer to this question, but whatever the decision made, it must be done through a process of due process, consensus building. How does one determine eligibility? Can the bishops place priests who are theologically similar to them in parishes? Yes, with consent of the lay people in charge, 
But can a bishop deny employment to a priest because that priest is married to someone of the same gender when the national church has ratified the sacrament of marriage between two people of the same gender? These questions have everything to do with the scope and authority of the episcopacy. For if bishops can deny the right of a clergy person to vote, democracy is compromised. Whatever the rules for governance, they must be clearly established and presented. Due process and the ability of a body to debate and digest these issues is key. A judge from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals sits here in Jacksonville. Judge Choflat says democracy is fragile. Without due process and some degree of trust, democracy will fall apart. Priests take a vow of obedience to our bishop in the ordination service, and yet great leadership in the day of the Internet is really based on consensus. And priests do have the right to vote, their conscience. Simple dictatorships don't fly in this modern age or even operate in a democracy very well. So how does a priest reconcile our vows of obedience with the freedom of expression that comes with a truly democratic culture? I believe that the Episcopal Church has an exciting blend of ancient wisdom with modern-day leadership. We have created what could be a denomination that is both innovative and grounded in tradition, and I believe we can do this. But if we are to be both thought leaders and Jesus followers, then we have some more work to do. We must make sure that we have rock-solid laws and governance that clearly defines areas of accountability and authority. And we must not only stick to these bylaws, but frequently evaluate them and upgrade them. This evaluation process cannot simply be done quickly by only a committee, but must have due process and must be digested by the entire governing body over a period of time. In other words, the common person needs to be informed, to be consulted, to be listened to. All bishops must have some kind of accountability as well, accountability to the wider church and to the people in the pews. We shouldn't have to wait for misconduct to encourage evaluation and accountability. We also live in an age where vulnerability is much more effective in motivating and eliciting change than pure authority. Because I said so just doesn't work in an age when answers are so readily available on the internet. Bishops must come up with more than just, I am a bishop. All Episcopalians must inspire people to follow us. People don't have to go to church. They will come when they are called to discipleship. They will come when they are inspired. But if they're not inspired, they will not come. The real power in the church lies in the people who decide to worship and give and serve. For without them, we will not survive. Ronald Heifetz from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government speaks of great leaders as those who can provide a container in which adaptive change can occur. This kind of leadership must not only be well-defined, but also trusted. It must be leadership in which all voices are heard. What does the Episcopacy look like in a postmodern world? What does democracy look like in a postmodern world? These are the questions that we must address at all levels of our miraculous three-tiered democratic Episcopal Church. These are the questions of our day. Thank you for joining me in the podcast, Find It. Remember that if you keep searching for the divine presence, you will find it.
I want to invite you, if you're interested in hearing more of these podcasts, to subscribe. Just hit the subscribe button and you will be informed of new episodes. And before we part ways, I pray that God will bless you 